You are God in heaven, and here am I on earth. So I'll let my words be few. Jesus, I am so in love with you. And I'll stand in awe of you, Jesus. Yes, I'll stand in awe of you. Oh, and I'll let my words be few, Jesus. I am so in love with you. The simplest of all love songs I want to bring to you. And so I'll let my words be few. Lord Jesus, I am so in love with you. And I'll stand in awe of you, Jesus. Yes, I'll stand in awe of you. And I'll let my words be few. Jesus, I am so in love with you. You are God in heaven, and here am I. And so I'll let my words be few. My Jesus, I am so in love with you. And I'll stand in awe of you. Lord Jesus, yes, I'll stand in awe of you, and I'll let my words be few. Jesus, I am so in love with you, and I'll stand in awe of you, Lord Jesus. Yes, I'll stand in awe of you, and I'll let my words be Jesus, I am so in love with you. 
I'm so in love with you. Jesus, I'm so in love with you. Amen. Let's let's pray. Father, may we always stand in awe of you. May we always remember who you are and who we are in the proper perspective. We come before you this morning in humility and gratitude for all you are and all you have done for us. Thank you for the gift of your Son, the one by whom we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lord, we pray now that, that you'll visit with us, speak to our hearts through your word. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to tell you a story about a man who, who was born on April 14, 1941, in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was the oldest of four children born to Henry and Laverne. His father, a frustrated jock who, who played hard into his 40s, he was determined to make an athlete out of his oldest son. And Harry made it clear to his son that when you play a game, any game, you play to win. You play hard, you play clean, you play fair, but you play to win. And he would often take his son to Crosley Field to watch the hometown Reds, who, who they loved. And he instilled into his son a love for baseball and a drive to never give up. And it worked. His son would play baseball everywhere and anywhere he could. The young boy's uncle, Buddy, he had played professional baseball in his youth. And along with his father, they'd teach the budding athlete the art of switch hitting, hitting from both sides of the plate. So every night after playing a long day of baseball, he would come home and he would swing a heavy leaded bat that his uncle Buddy had given him 150 times from the right side and 150 times from the left side, perfecting his swing. He not only found that he had a knack for hitting a baseball, but he had a drive that would never be equaled in the history of the game. His other uncle, Curly Smart, worked for the Reds' clubhouse uh, custodian, and he'd, he'd get the now scrawny teenager access to the field during the Reds' batting practice. Well, this was a thrill. He'd play catch with his idols. He'd soak up every bit of knowledge he could about the game, its strategies and fine points. All the foundation was in place. He had become an expert switch hitter, a smooth fielder with a hustle and drive that never quit. By the time he finished high school, he was already on the radar of a number of major league teams. He signed a professional contract the day he graduated. And the rest was history. He was Major League Baseball's Rookie of the Year in 1963, League MVP in 73. He was the greatest player on what was arguably one of the greatest teams ever, the, the 1975 Cincinnati Reds, the Big Red Machine. They won uh, the championship, and he was the World Series MVP. He was Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year in 1975. He was baseball's best hitter for well over a decade. 
He was baseball's last player manager for his beloved hometown Reds. He set a number of records that will never be touched, including the all-time number of, of hits, 4,256. And to put that into perspective, the closest player to that today just retired after a 22-year career, and he's at 3,100 hits. He was the most respected player and manager of his time, and he was the very face of Major League Baseball for so many years. Who am I talking about, Vince? Pete Rose. Pete Rose. Today you won't find Pete Rose in baseball's Hall of Fame. Forty years after he was last involved with baseball, you won't find him still managing or coaching, scouting, or even announcing. In fact, he's been banned from the game that he so loved. You'll find the story of a legend who broke the rules. You'll find the story of a man who felt he was above the rules of the game and he bet on baseball while he was still a player and manager. Blame it on pride, blame it on a cavalier attitude, blame it on ignorance, whatever, whatever the case may be, it's the saddest story when a man with such talent and, and who started out with so much success, so much devotion and love for something, ends with such a stained legacy. A legacy destroyed. He wasn't the first. He won't be the last. And he wasn't even the greatest example of such a fall from grace. That story took place in Judah around 800 B.C. So turn with me to our text this morning, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. You can look up at your video screens. We're going to read the story about a king of Judah whose pedigree, skills, talents, and accomplishments should have left him with a legacy as the greatest king in Judah's history. You know, the Bible is so good at giving us examples of, of what to do and how to live, but it, it's equally good at giving us examples of what not to do and allowing us to see the complete life cycle and consequences of, of such choices. We're going to look at an example of the latter today. It's a sad story, but one we can learn from. A man who was on his way to being the greatest king of Judah's entire history, his name was Uzziah. His name meant, Jehovah is my strength. He had a godly upbringing. He was raised in the fear of the Lord. He was handpicked by God and became the king of Judah at the age of 16. He found favor with God. He was as impressive and successful a king as had been seen since Solomon. He had a massive, well-trained army and was known for his military savvy. He was regarded as a genius inventor with a knack for engineering, irrigation, soil treatment. He personally created a number of architectural and engineering devices. Brilliant, brilliant man. He developed new catapult technique that made Judah a greater threat to his enemies. He was beloved by those around him. His reign lasted 52 years and saw the nation of Judah rise to new heights of status and success and victory. Yet in the end, his legacy is one of a failure. With all of his pedigree and all of his potential, his achievements and accomplishments, history judges him a failure. And his tombstone read simply, he had leprosy. What happened? 
How, how do you go from the path of being one of the greatest kings in history to a fallen, forgotten leper? How, how do you rewrite your legacy from rising star to sad failure so quickly? Well, we're going to learn from the mistakes of this king today. We're going to see exactly what causes such a descent and demise. Second Chronicles chapter 26, starting in verse 1, Uzziah. Let's read his story. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jecoliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna, and Ashdod. He then rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gerbaal and against the Maonites. The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate and at the angle of the wall, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the wilderness and dug many cisterns because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plain. He had people working his fields and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Uzziah had a well-trained army, ready to go out by divisions according to their numbers as mustered by Jael, the secretary, and Masiah, the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials. The total number of family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 men trained for war, a powerful force to support the king against his enemies. Uzziah provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows and sling stones for the entire army. In Jerusalem, he made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defenses so that soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the walls. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. Let's stop here. It's quite a description. That's a king. Where's this guy for our presidential election? <laughs> Respected leader, Military commander, inventor, engineering genius. In modern terms, Uzziah was a cross between Abraham Lincoln, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and George Patton. What a guy. What a leader. That's a king. That's a king. By the time he was 16, he was the most powerful man in all of Judah. But, but he wasn't just a figurehead. History tells us for several years he was assistant to his father, and apparently he was a pretty good apprentice. Because once his father died, the kingdom really took off. Verses 6 to 8, they tell of Judah's prosperity in the area of foreign affairs. And it's interesting that the scripture specifically points out Uzziah's success with the Philistines. The nation hadn't had success against the Philistines since King David. 
And in verse 2, it points out Uzziah's success in rebuilding the strategic port city of Elath. They hadn't had control of Elath since Solomon. So already you can see that in the area of foreign affairs, he, he was incredible, and Judah hadn't prospered that much since the days of her two greatest kings. Verses 9 and 10, we read of Uzziah's prosperity in the area of domestic affairs. They were having a building boom at home. Buildings, public works, economy, beauty, luxury. Things had never been better on the home front. Verses 11 to 13 tell of Uzziah's prosperity in the area of military strength. Other than their ally Israel to the north, Judah had the strongest military in the area. They were unrivaled in manpower and equipment. And in verses 14 to 15, we, we read of Uzziah's technological prosperity. Right? They had the most advanced technology of the day, thanks to him. The text reads like they had invented catapults. Any way you look at it, Uzziah was extremely prosperous and successful. He had respect, he had power, he had influence, he had success. Why? Well, verse 5 tells us exactly why. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Success in life is provisional. Joy in life is provisional. Peace in life is provisional. Scripture memory class today had the verse, I will keep thee in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. There's a provision. When we're close to God, there are blessings. There's success. There's favor. Uzziah found success only because he sought the Lord and his will. But it's the end of a matter that matters, isn't it? It's not how we start. It's how we finish. So let's read the finish. Verse 16. But after Uzziah had become powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, a container for burning incense, ready to burn incense, became angry while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and banned from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. The other events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz. Uzziah rested with his ancestors and was buried near them in a cemetery that belonged to the kings. For people said... He had leprosy, and Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. 
What a sad, sad legacy to end such a great start. How? How do you go from beloved, respected, successful, talented, blessed by God, to outcast, banned, abandoned, and alone? How does it happen? Well, needless to say, these, these falls from grace never happen due to circumstances outside of ourselves, right? They always start with developments in our hearts. You don't lose favor with God. You don't lose res the respect of the masses because something happened to you. You lose these things because you did something. You happened to you. So let's take a look at three things today. Three things explicitly outlined in this chapter that led King Uzziah from brilliant success to miserable failure. And these same three things can destroy our lives today if we're not careful. They can rob us of our peace, steal our joy, ruin our success, our testimony, and our very legacy. What are they? What caused King Uzziah's downfall? Well, our first point is in verse 16. We read it. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Pride. His pride led to his downfall. It's ironic that it's always the first step in any tragic decline. Pride. What is pride? Well, it's, it's a condition in which we begin to think of ourselves as greater than we are. To understand pride, you have to understand First, that God wants us to think of ourselves in proper relationship to Him. Pride elevates self to a place of importance that was never meant for us. Pride indicates self-reliance instead of reliance on God. It looks at everything you have acquired and everything you have accomplished and achieved and forgets whose hand they came from. We begin to think so highly of ourselves and and our achievements that we feel we don't need anyone. We don't need God. We don't need any authority, in fact. We may not say it as such, but even if we don't realize it, it's evident by our actions, our attitudes. It's loud and clear. C.S. Lewis says this of pride. He says, There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the, and the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. It is the essential vice, the utmost evil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. We don't need God. Pride is destructive. We begin to feel we know best. We can do no wrong. We don't need God. We don't need others. I'm right, everyone else is wrong. I don't need to listen to anyone. I've accomplished this, I've achieved that. Why do I need to listen to anyone? Pride destroys relationships, ruins reputations, ends careers, dismantles families. It's the most destructive of sins because it's not only the hardest to see in ourselves, it's also the hardest to correct. We can't see it in ourselves because it corrupts us to start looking and, and judging everyone else's actions. What does Scripture say about pride? Plenty. Take a look at some of these verses. James 4, 6. But He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. James 4, 10. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 13.10, where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 16.5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16.8, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 26.12, do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. Psalm 10.4, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Isaiah 2.12, the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. It's not a label we want to carry, but it, but it so often happens, and it happened to Uzziah. How? Well, we, we rewrite history. We go back to the marvelous providences from the hand of God. We go back to the victories He helped us win. We go back to the achievements His grace produced in us, and we rewrite them in our minds. We replace God's providence. We replace God's hand. We replace God's grace with our skills, our endurance, our perseverance. And what was provided to us only by God's mercy and grace becomes a point of pride in ourselves. We essentially forget God. We forget those who helped us along the way. It's exactly what happened to Uzziah. Those military victories that only God provided, well, in his mind they became showcases for his military prowess. Those inventions that were God-inspired, well, they became showcases for his brilliant mind. Those armies, those armies that God amassed for him, well, they became showcases of his popularity and great leadership. We replace God in our lives with our abilities, our wisdom, our skills, and where does that lead? Destruction. We read it. His pride led to his downfall. What happens is that instead of relying on God, who can do all things, who has brought us through in the past, who has helped us achieve and helped us accomplish, we begin to rely on ourselves, our skills, our abilities, our wisdom. And we're so busy judging everyone else around us because we feel so far superior that we don't have time to reflect on our lives and the decay of our own heart. And in our foolish pride and our reliance upon ourself, we fall flat on our face, always and every time. Our perspective is skewed. We elevate ourselves into a position in our lives that should be reserved only for God. May we strive to fight against that, that human nature. May we strive to rightly remember our achievements and accomplishments and victories as exclusively by His hand of gracious providence. King Canute was once a ruler of England. The members of his court were continually full of flattery. You're the greatest man that ever lived. You are the most powerful king of all. Your Highness, there's nothing you cannot do. Nothing in this world dares disobey you. Well, the king was a wise man, and he grew tired of such foolish speeches. So one day, as he was walking by the seashore, Canute decided to teach them a lesson. 
So you say I am the greatest man in the world? He asked them. Oh, king, they cried. There never has been anyone as mighty as you, and there never will be anyone as so great ever again. And you say all things obey me? Canute asked. Yes, sire, the world bows before you and gives you honor. I see, the king answered. In that case, bring me my chair and place it down by the water. The servants scrambled to carry Canute's royal chair over the sands, and at his direction, they, they placed it right at the water's edge. The king sat down and, and looked out at the ocean. I notice the tide is coming in. Do you think it will stop if I give the command? Give the order, O great king, and it will obey, cried the entourage. See, cried Canute. I command you to come no further. Do not dare touch my feet. He waited a moment, and the wave rushed up the sand and lapped at his feet. <gasps> How dare you, Canute shouted. Ocean, turn back now. I have ordered you to retreat before me, and now you must obey. Go back. In came another wave, lapping at the king's feet. Canute remained on his throne throughout the day, screaming at the waves to stop. Yet in they came anyway until the seat of his throne was covered in water. Finally, Canute turned to his entourage and said, It seems I do not have quite so much power as you would have me believe. Perhaps now you will remember there's only one king who is all-powerful, and it is he who rules the sea and holds the ocean in the hollow of his hand. I suggest you reserve your praises for him. Let's always remember who God is and who we are in the proper perspective, in the proper order. We breathe only because he provides the air. We have only because he gives. We accomplish only because he does. May we never think so highly of ourselves that pride sets in and like Uzziah begins to drive our thoughts, our motives, our attitudes, our decisions our actions and our path. In Muhammad Ali's heyday, as the heavyweight champion of the world in boxing, he had taken his seat on a 747, which was starting to taxi down the runway for takeoff. The flight attendant walked by and noticed Ali didn't have his seatbelt on. She said, please fasten your seatbelt, sir. He looked up proudly and he snapped, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Oh, without hesitation, she stared at him and said, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> Are we so great in our own eyes? We've got to keep it in perspective. Remember who we are and who God is. When we do that, we avoid the pride that can lead only to inevitable destruction. So first, first step, his pride sets in and begins the inevitable chain reaction to tragedy. Back to verse 16 now. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Step one. Step two, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So our second point, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. What does that mean? What is unfaithfulness to God? Well, when you're unfaithful, it means you haven't kept your end of the agreement. You cheated. We know what that means in marital terms, right? We know what it meant for Pete Rose. 
What does it mean here? You're unfaithful to God. Well, for this to make more sense, we've got to go back a little bit into Israel's history when God made a covenant with his nation and provided Moses the Ten Commandments to give the people. We remember that. The Ten Commandments form the core of the covenant. The words of the, of the covenant were the Ten Commandments were written on tablets of stone in Exodus 34. And although the covenant, we equate it with the Ten Commandments, it, it covers all of Exodus chapters 20 to 30. The Lord wrote, The law and commands I have written for their instruction. So in this covenant, this agreement between God and his people, the people agreed to be servants of God and he agreed to protect them. The covenant was made not only with Israel as a nation, but it was made with Moses as well, as its leader. And as part of this covenant, Hebrews 9.1 tells us the original covenant included regulations for worship and a sanctuary. Only Levitical priests were allowed to burn incense to God in the temple. That was part of the covenant agreement. So God had, as part of the agreement, the covenant, instructions and regulations for worship and the sanctuary. So, so when Uzziah barged in to the sanctuary and burned incense to God, or tried, he essentially cheated on this covenant agreement. That's where the unfaithfulness to God came. And it wasn't accidental. He didn't forget. Had it been merely a slip or, or oversight, he would have taken the rebuke in earnest and said, I'm so sorry. It, it slipped my mind. This was completely an oversight. Please forgive me. I'm out. No, it was complete rebellion. Not against God's chosen priests, but against God himself. Pride leads to sin. Sin leads to rebellion. We turn on God. We may not even realize it, but we turn on Him. Rebellion and sin is shaking a clenched fist at God. We may think we're rebelling against human leadership, human rules. Uzziah may have thought his actions were simply a slap in the face to those priests. They can't stop me. I'm king. It was a slap in the face to God. Those were God's rules. Those were God's priests. Uzziah's rebellion was against God. And the repercussions were not from the priests or any human leader. They were from God and they were swift. It begins with pride. It turns to sin and unfaithfulness to God. It becomes pure rebellion and it ends with a cold heart and tragic destruction. Ravi Zacharias tells a true story as relayed by Svetlana Stalin. She was the daughter of Joseph Stalin. And according to her, as Stalin lay dying, plagued with terrifying hallucinations, he, he suddenly sat halfway up in his bed, clenched his fist toward the heavens once more, fell back upon his pillow and died. The incredible irony of, the, of his whole life was that at one time, Joseph Stalin was, was a seminary student preparing for the ministry. Coming of Nietzschean age, he made a decisive break from the belief in God. And this dramatic and complete reversal of conviction that resulted in his hatred for all religion is why Lenin had earlier chosen Stalin and, and positioned him in authority, a choice Lenin would later regret. And as Stalin lay dying, his one last gesture was a clenched fist toward God, his heart as cold and hard as steel. That's where it leads. 
begins with pride. Pride leads to unfaithfulness to God or sin. Unconfessed sin leads to rebellion. And when we rebel against God and His people, it begins a slippery slope to a cold heart and destruction. So we begin to clearly see the path Uzziah is taking. First, pride. Second, unfaithfulness to God, sin. And our third point was Uzziah's last step in his plunge. He turned against the spiritual authority God had placed in his life, and he refused to repent. Verse 18. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple. Leprosy broke out on his forehead. Uzziah! Last chance. The priests, the spiritual authority God had placed in his life, tried so desperately to stop Uzziah from taking that last step to destruction. God will not bless you, Uzziah. Don't do this, Uzziah. Don't take this step. Turn around, Uzziah. How did Uzziah respond? Thank you. Thank you for opening my eyes. I ask for God's forgiveness and yours. Hmm. No, he became angry and enraged at the priests. We tend to turn on the messenger, don't we? It wasn't their rule. It wasn't their principle. It wasn't their covenant agreement. They were upholding God's covenant. They were trying to prevent sin, to prevent rebellion, to prevent destruction. Thank God for those in our lives that He has placed to try and stop us from making a bad mistake. Uzziah not only didn't listen, he put up a cold hand in the face of correction, And he turned on them. He raged against them. You know, what was his argument exactly? You're trying to control my life. I'm king. You can't tell me what to do. We we act like spoiled, rotten children when we don't get our way, don't we? How quickly we forget God's covenant, His principles, His commands, in our commitment to do what we want to do. And we turn on anyone that tries to remind us of them. His pride opened the door. His sin got him here. And his refusal to listen to correction sealed the deal. And the rest is a sad and tragic history. God had enough. That's it. God immediately afflicted him with leprosy. He had to give up the throne. He had to give up the palace. And it's interesting to note how the priests and the people dealt with him at that point. Did they continue to visit and befriend him, hoping to get him to turn back to God? Mm -mm. That's God's job, not ours. They already spoke their peace. Oh, come on, there's still good in Uzziah. You know, he was just he was trying to, to, to burn incense before the Lord. He's a good guy. He still loves God. Mm -mm. Call it like it is. When we identify sin and rebellion, we stay far, far away from it, as far as we can. No matter who the source of it is, 
When Uzziah made his decision, the priests stepped back. They stopped pleading with him. They stopped associating with him. They got him out of the temple. They stopped coddling him. They stepped aside and they let God take over. They separated from him. He ended up dying alone. We read it in solitary confinement. And his tombstone, his very legacy would simply read, he had leprosy. That's it. That's his story. That's his legacy. What about all the great accomplishments? The great achievements. The military feats. Those battles he won. Elath. The, the catapults. The foreign affairs. Remember, he was as great as David and Solomon. What happened? None of them mattered. N none of them were remembered. It's the very end of a matter that matters. We can overshadow all the good in our lives. We can ruin our very testimony with one misstep that places us on the slippery slope to a rebellious destruction. And sadly, Uzziah was memorialized for God's punishment upon his life. That's what we remember. How much, friend, how much should we hate pride when we realize that, when we read this story? It should cause us to, to run to God, to cling to Him, to draw nearer to Him, to live the way He wants us to, to obey Him immediately and consistently, to keep our pride in check and embrace His Word, His ways, and His people. It can happen, and, and it happens all too often. We've seen our heroes fall. We've seen Christians stumble. We've seen people we've looked up to disappoint us. Always remember, it's self-caused. Like Uzziah, it begins with pride. It continues to sin and rebellion that turns against any correction, and it ends with a legacy destroyed. And that's something you can't change once you leave it behind. The reality is that every life leaves a legacy. It's not an option. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what kind of legacy am I leaving? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? However you frame the question, the truth is that right now, every one of us, well, we're working on a legacy that we're going to leave behind. Your family will have left in their hands that which you pass on to them. They will be left with your legacy, good or bad. It's what they'll have. And the legacy you leave them becomes the legacy they live and in turn becomes the basis for the legacy they leave. What will your legacy be? A husband and wife who walked by faith and consequently left a legacy far beyond anything they could have imagined lived in the early 1700s in colonial America. Their names were Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. Simple people. Jonathan Edwards felt God's call to become a minister. He faithfully obeyed. He and his young bride began a pastorate in a small congregation. And during the years that followed, he wrote many sermons, prayers, books. He became influential in beginning the Great Awakening. And together they produced 11 children who grew into adulthood. Sarah was a partner in her husband's ministry. 
and he sought her advice regarding sermons and church matters. They spent time talking about these things together, and when their children were old enough, the parents included them in the discussions. And the effects of the Edwards' lives have been far-reaching. But the most measurable results of their faithfulness to God's call is found through their legacy of descendants. In 1900, A.E. Winship did a study. This was not even 200 years later, in which he lists a few of the accomplishments of the then 1400 Edwards descendants that he was able to find. This was way back then. Of them, there were 100 lawyers at a dean of a law school, 80 holders of public office, 66 physicians and a dean of a medical school, 65 professors of colleges and universities, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, three mayors of large cities, three governors of states, three U.S. senators, one controller of the U.S. Treasury, and one vice president of the United States. What a legacy. And what did they do? What did they do to earn such a legacy? They lived humbly. They walked by faith, and they obeyed God. They didn't feel they were accomplishing much, perhaps, but God took care of their legacy. Quite a contrast to Uzziah. You know, I'm, I'm thankful for Uzziah's story nonetheless. I'm thankful because his life provides us the recipe for disaster. And when we know what causes disaster, we learn what to avoid. May God help us. May God help us stand strong and vigilant against any hint of pride in our lives. May we obey Him and His Word May we be open to correction and repentance. Do that. Do that with heartfelt earnestness and dedication and let God take care of your legacy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that, that you reveal to us through the example of Uzziah the downward spiral to which pride, sin, and rebellion inevitably lead. Please keep us humble in our lives, Father. May we always remember with a right perspective that you are God and we are but your fragile children. May we remember that all good things in our lives come directly from your hand and exclusively from your hand. Keep us clinging to you, Father. Help us to, to always honor and obey your word and give us a humble and broken spirit when those you have placed as the authority in our lives, correct us. Thank you for this family, Father. Thank you for where you have placed us. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the precious gift of your Son who died to redeem us to you. Forgive us of our sins and, and make us holy in your sight. We are so thankful. We are your grateful children. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.